Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and we're so happy to start off our new spring-summer series of Loopcast shows. And today we have John Spencer that is going to talk about urban warfare for us. And before we start the show, I'll make two disclaimers. We've got some um, construction going on in the building on my end, so hopefully there won't be too much background noise. And I may sound a little bit like a frog because I've been slightly ill this week. But with all that said, um, first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show, John. All right. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Likewise. And for our listeners, John is chair of Urban Warfare Studies at the Modern War Institute, West Point, and the co-director of Urban Warfare Project. He's also served time in the military and was deployed in Iraq. And his work has been featured in numerous publications, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, among many others. So he is the perfect person to discuss urban warfare, which I think is a very important topic, especially considering how warfare has been playing out in the arena lately in the last number of years. So why don't we just start off with a really basic question, John. Why is urban warfare important to understand? So yeah, that's a you know, throw me a softball first. Um, I appreciate. It. Uh, I think for me, it's it's so important to understand because um, it is the most complex and challenging environment you could ever hold armed conflict, which is kind of our definition of warfare. You know, two combatants. Um, all these definitions get get really blurry, um, and I think we're, we're going to cover some of that blur. Um, but for me, you know, armed conflict in an urban area means that there's going to be presence of civilians, um, presence of complex terrain um, that all make the job of a, somebody in the military very difficult to achieve what you know our political leadership is usually asking the military to do. And that could be to you know, to conduct a regi- regime change in a capital city. It could be to um, eliminate an insurgent force who's who's taken an, an urban area or a portion of an urban area captive um, to, you know, to liberate a city f- from them and save the civilians. And all that is you couldn't ask them to do any of those jobs in more of a complex environment than an urban area. And, you know, th- that's what I've dedicated you know, my studies to for many years now. And some of that's because I, I've been in that position and as a, you know, an infantry company commander in Baghdad trying to do a whole range of missions. The urban environment, um, they call it the great equalizer. One of the reasons is just because it, it has so many advantages and disadvantages for, you know, for whoever that it creates these very complex legal um, military problems that are really hard to address. And, and I think they're understudied, under-trained because throughout history, militaries and you can say nation states in general have avoided for good reasons ever fighting in cities or urban areas. And there's a big difference between the two. I mean that avoidance has led us to not develop capabilities, um, which then makes the job even more hard, if that makes sense. No, completely. And so you've just made a comment that I want to kind of pull into this conversation. Mm-hmm. And you've mentioned cities are slightly different than other urban spaces. So how do we define urban space as a combat zone? I'm, I'm just going to call it urban space because for me, 
terminology-wise, that seems to be the easiest one, but I'm sure you have terminology that's much more effective for this. Oh, yeah. I actually went, you know, in my research, went to define, you know, I, I wrote something recently about can you kill a city, uh, a fascinating research, um, because it made you define what is a city, um, and it gets so, I hate to keep using the word complex, it gets so difficult because there's no shared understanding of the definition of a city. Most people, um, whatever organization, if you, everything from the World Bank, the United Nations to the U.S. military define a city differently. Um, usually people will, will draw a line in the sand with a population number. So some, you know, I think the United Nations and others take it about 50,000 people living in an urban area and they start um, recognizing it as a city. Um, there are different definitions of it's a certain number of people um, with a certain type of administrative, um, you know, political administrative apparatus. Um, the, the U.S. military has a number of like 100,000. Um, we'll put it into a city category. And then, you know, uh, administrative, you know, you have a mayor, you have a political system. Um, now, I can usually d- define it just by doing that, saying if you have a certain number of population, you have a certain social organization and, and political order in order to manage that. But so urban, that's kind of easy. <laughs> the United Nations um, define and other people define urban as everything left over after you've drawn out the rural. And that's that's about how they do it. So. Yeah, just like you were saying, it's really hard to say, what, what word do you want me to use? Fighting in urban space. Um, does that just mean that you have a bunch of buildings and a bunch of people living in it? Um, because how do you distinguish between a village and a city when they're both considered urban? Um, but for me, once you reach into a city, then you – and this is what I write about a lot. Cities are something different. They're not just a lot of people living on um, man-made terrain. Um, and, and having the infrastructure to deal with the number of the population. That's, those are the three things that the, most people will, will signify. It's called the urban triad. You have a lot of people. You have complex um, physical terrain. It means you built like the buildings and everything, and then you have the infrastructure to support all those people. Um, but for me, cities, to so fighting in cities, that's this different category because a city is a very large population of people living on – you know, urban terrain and having all the infrastructure, but it also puts it in this different category where it's its own living organism. Um, and that, if anybody's ever heard me talk, they'll, they'll hear me say that. And you know, that goes back to the 1950s of urban studies and ac- academic communities because there's there's lots of academic programs that study urban areas and um, that create urban planners, people that are concerned with resiliency and things like that. Um, well, for a long time, there have been urban researchers who classify cities as these complex living organisms, um, and by that, that mean they're they're not just a lot of people living in in, in urban areas. It, it's its own living entity, meaning that on a day to day basis, it it breathes, right? It has a certain amount of food, a certain amount of potable water, a certain amount of um, goods and services that are going on. That are because the people are there, but it's almost a function in and of itself. And it's a real-time picture. So a complex organism, and I like to use you know different analogies just to help understand how complex it is. But any city, take any city, 
um, and we can use a current city like, let's say, Raqqa. Um, before urban warfare happens, Raqqa is a living organism, right? It has 200,000 people living in it. It has a certain amount of food that's going in every day, a certain, a certain amount of trash that has to come out every day. Um, and all those what we call metabolic rates or those, those systems that are happening um, create this very special entity that's called a city um, that needs to support the population um, that lives there but also needs to function by itself. And it, For warfare, it gets important because most of the time and um, if, you, if, if you ask somebody about the military, they're concerned about um, basically the bad guy, the enemy, the combatant that's inside the city. So most of their analysis will be about the the combatant, even if he's using you know the buildings and underground. It's about the combatant. It's not in and the civilians because that's required in international law. So we can't damage um, infrastructure that supports the civilian um, without hurting the civilians themselves. But this this thing about a city, we don't look at cities as a, a, a player in the equation. But they are right. The the city is this organism that's that's the host to you know over a hundred thousand people. Um, and if you don't know what it looked like the day before the conflict started, then we don't know how it it was functioning before it, and then how to basically get it back to that functioning state um, after the armed conflict. I know that was that was a long um, definition, um, but most people define a city. Um, as a certain number of population in an urban area. Urban areas are um, complex terrain that has both people, buildings, and infrastructure to support the people. Now, then you need to find a rule as everything other than that. So looking at, I'm going to call it urban terrain because you used that a little bit ago. Yep. <clears throat> looking at urban terrain, what sets it apart as a combat space. So how do we, in a combat zone, in a, in a war, how do we maneuver in an urban terrain and, and deal with this city that has its own life as well as the people as well as whoever the enemy is within that space? Yeah. Um, so, and that's why some of these conversations get so hard is because it all matters about the 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 context of the situation. So, what is the mission? Um, and of whatever you. So, if you, in order to be called a combat zone or combat space, it has to be asked through the person, you know, through who you're asking. If you're asking, let's say, an internal country, um, of, of let's say, let's take it back to something we're all familiar, Iraq. You know, if you're sending U.S. forces into Baghdad, they of course consider that a combat zone. Everybody in Baghdad don't think they live in a combat zone, despite that there's an active insurgency against the government that they're trying to form. Um, so the government that's in, you know, let's say Iraq or let's say Baghdad, even get it very urban. Um, it the line between um, armed resistance, criminal behavior, um, gets really blurry depending on what type of operation you, you're talking about, and, and insurgencies become that, let's say, quote-unquote gray zone, that the definitions get really blurry. Um, for, but if you're asking a military guy what's a combat zone, is, is somewhere where the 
your government has sent you to achieve political objectives. Um, so if you send me to any urban area, I'm going to consider it a combat zone, even if it's um, you know, for support to another army and I'm not engaged in any armed conflict. I'm just there as an advisor, um, but I'm in an urban area, then that's considered a combat zone to me. Does that get to it? Yes, it does. Okay. So another question I have actually is yeah. – you mentioned insurgency, insurgencies, excuse me, and then we have all-out war, where a war has been declared between a number of nations, two nations, whatever the situation is. So is there a different way that a combat space or combat zone in an urban terrain is dealt with compared to, like, say, dealing with an insurgency versus all-out war? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and there's plenty of historical examples of that. Yeah, so... Yeah. Actually, the question makes me think – so we had this saying called a three-block war um, in, our, in our lexicon about urban warfare. Um, there's you know, this old Marine Corps – I shouldn't call him old, but somebody who used to be the commandant of the Marine Corps came up with the term three-block war, meaning that in these, in these urban areas, um, you put military forces into the urban area. Um, on one block, they could be engaging in what we call high-intensity conflict against an armed combatant. Um, you know, whether that's a nation state combatant, you know, an, you know, somebody in a uniform, which you know causes you know, distinctions in the war, law of warfare, or a non-state actor who's not following um, any guidance. Um, on one block, you could be engaged in high-intensity conflict, you know, full-out war against them. On the next block over, you could be conducting. Um, Police action, you know, helping local authorities deal with criminal behavior that could also be the same, you know, combatant, but he's a non-state actor who's just involved in criminal activities. And then one block over, you could be the military could be engaging in uh, humanitarian efforts and to help the civilians with essential services and get them water, get them out of the combat. Um, that's the complexity of urban combat that. He wrote about it in you know in the '90s because he saw, he saw it coming. But it's it is now the reality that when you in any example of today, when you send a military into a city, he's engaging in multiple types of operations simultaneously, and that's really hard for any army to do, even the you know, the most professional army in the world, to be able to do all three types of operations at once um, because of the the complexity that is created when you send you know two people to fight or two people are fighting against each other amongst an urban area where hundreds of thousands of civilians are living i'm glad you touched on that point because that's actually a question i had further down the line for the show yeah yeah it seems like all of a sudden you're thrown into this situation where you're fighting but you're also helping keep the peace like you said policing um potentially administrating within the, the conflict zone or combat space. Yeah, I mean that's that's um, yeah. It's, so it's I, I usually break up because it gets so hard to talk about this, um, especially when you start talking about the operations. I always put it into two buckets um, <laughs> in, within my study. There's one bucket of the, the how hard it is to understand urban areas, you know, without the combat, um, just how to understand. Um, how the how it's working? How how is this 
uh, civilization within this urban area, how does it work? You know, how is power shared between legitimate authorities and illegitimate authorities? How is food you know, brought in daily in order to feed this number of people? You know, same thing with the, the, the trash and the waste. So that's one bucket. How do you understand the urban environment? And that's, that's a huge um, field of study that um, is still underdeveloped. And then there's this other bucket about how to understand how to conduct your operation in the environment. So I always put in these two books, how to understand the environment and how to basically – how to conduct something in an environment. So if, if that's warfare, that's this other bucket, right? How do I, how do, I do what I'm being asked to do? Um, you know, on the most high end, how do I eliminate the bad persons in this urban area with the least amount of damage to the people and to this other living organism called a city? Um, and they're not independent of each other. Like, in order to conduct your mission in a city, you should really understand how that city works. But they're, they're two separate buckets for me, um, and, and it is sometimes the reason that a lot of stuff gets lost in the message because we, we really just want to understand how to eliminate the bad person, irrelevant of how the understanding how the city works. But you know, history will tell you as soon as you eliminate the bad person, then the day after is how to restore the the environment back to a functioning state or city as quickly as possible. Is that something that actually goes into a pre-operation? learning about the city and how it operates because as you said a city has its own life to it so is yeah. that something that is studied beforehand and before going into combat or is it more once combat is over how do we bring the city back to life mm, great question um so it's again i don't yeah it's like i'm a reporter uh yeah. So context really matters. Um, so the mission really matters, and you know the military usually gets, um, you know, gets a bad rap or reputation for not planning for the day after. What we you know call it phase four operations um, or stability operations. But there are a lot of great inst- um, organizations and institutions that do that work um, on stability and operations. And if you um, I've talked about some of that, um, but the military is going to put the most resources and invest and build their military to conduct the, you know, the operation of eliminating the bad guy with not as much resource and investment in understanding cities or understanding how to rebuild cities afterwards. And one of the reasons um, is because we just don't we don't prepare no military does um for cities and 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 people get kind of weird when i say that especially being a military guy nobody builds militaries for cities they build militaries to fight anywhere right so any military is supposed to be able and it's not just the u.s military take any any military um it's a it's a very what they call general purpose force um, designed to be able to fight anywhere, um, and it's designed to fight other armies. And that, I think, in, in and lays kind of the problem um, with most militaries. I can't even think of one other than Israel 
that that allows themselves to specialize in urban terrain, which leads to a whole host of problems when you talk about understanding the city, being able to do a mission in the city, or being able to help a city recover itself. Even a you know it's even if it's your nation, that's not what you're building your military to do. You build your military to defend your nation against the greatest scenario, and usually it, it won't be in a city. Um, so that, that gets to this whole line of questioning on why is urban warfare so important is that all militaries assume that the battle that they're preparing for will not happen in an urban area. And that includes the world's greatest military, which is the you know, by numbers and by profession and by complexity, the U.S. military. Um, we don't envision the biggest threat to our nation state, a fight in a city. And it's 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 really weird, but if you it, you know I've studied it for so long that I kind of understand the the reasons for avoiding preparing for urban operations, because understanding what you have built your military to do, let's the U.S. military for say let's say the U.S. military is built to fight another nation's military, and our national defense strategy says who that's going to be. We're going to prepare for the worst case scenario. We're going to build our army to fight a China, a Russia. Uh, a, a near peer adversary, and then if you look at the kind of the the future wars we envision, we don't envision those being in the cities, right? We envision these large um, battles that are in more open space because we don't want constraints. Because as soon as you enter an urban area, any army who follows humanitarian, you know, the law of war or the international humanitarian law. Is immediately constrained if the battle merges into a city, um, just by because we we're, we follow the, the laws of war, and as soon as you pull yourself get pulled into a city, the constraints on the military go way up, and the threats to the military themselves go way up because of how dense the urban areas can be, and that's kind of history as well. Is that even if you're a non-state actor, if you can pull a military into an urban area, you get these crazy advantages, and you take away all the technological advances that's been that we work really hard to develop to fight another army. And, and that's why people avoid the urban areas because as soon as you move into the urban areas, you, you start to constrain your military. You start to take away the advantages the military has, and you give the whoever's inside the city greater advantages and that's what we always say that the defender has a, a greater advantage in an urban area than the attacker so hypothetically that all sounds great in the sense <laughs> of how we conduct warfare or how we want to conduct warfare yeah but one of my personal anthems if you want to call it lately is that modern warfare as of late, has not been too much state-to-state warfare. It's been much more non-state actors, uh, insurgencies, and so forth. Yep. Um, and so warfare, in my mind, has changed. It's not what we prepare for as this, like you said, big wars against China or Russia and you know, states against states. So technically, we're seeing a lot more urban warfare, and I think these lines of who is a civilian and who's a uniformed soldier have become very blurred. How do we define combatants within 
this new arena, I guess you could call it. Um, and what are your thoughts on what I just said about how warfare has definitely changed? So, uh, amen to that. Um, the fact <laughs> okay. that, ur- that warfare in general has changed. And I think this is where it still blows my mind. Um, even working within military communities, working within um, humanitarian law communities. Uh, so the last major war that you can say that we fought was World War II. Um, and you can – and that – no matter what anybody says, that um, vision of warfare is deep into our cultures uh, as nation states. You know, the great power competition, you name it. The, the thing that's happened since World War II is that the the entire world has changed, and this is where you know if you give me a, a moment, I'll geek out on you. But it's to me, it's still mind blowing that um, you know 1950s. So after after World War II, thirty percent of the world's population was urban. About ten years ago, which is not that long, um, over fifty percent of the world has been urban, and the UN estimates that. By 2030, and, and that kind of seems far away, but that's almost less than 10 years away. Two thirds of the world's population will be living in cities. And don't forget, there's a difference between cities and urban. So, two thirds of the population will be living in cities. The urban population in developing countries will double, and that's insane. Um, and the areas by, covered by cities will triple, and that's that's from today to 10 years from now. Um, but for some reason, we hold on to this vision of warfare happening um, in these major passes between mountains, um, despite that the entire global terrain has changed. And it's really hard to find a non-urban area to fight in. Um, and, and the numbers are actually misleading. So 50% of the world – over 50% of the world's population is – or the world is urban right now. But that's in that's encompassing the entire globe, right? So that's like major parts of uh, Africa that are just not inhabited. I mean the the developing world is over 80, 90 percent urban already. And most most of the times urban is good, right? So urban is, is synonymous with development, technology, um, ec- economic vitality. I mean it's, it's also mind-blowing that just – over 70% of the global GDP it comes out of the 300 biggest cities in the globe. All this to me is mind-blowing because like you said, we hold on to a vision of warfare that is not urban. Despite all the fighting that's happened in the last you know, 15 years, despite all the global changes that have happened and are predicted to happen over the next just 10 years – I mean, two-thirds of the world's population has happened in urban areas. A massive spike of urbanization and population growth, which all – I know i got to get to a point. All that, that, that urbanization and increase in urbanization within 10 years, I mean that's crazy fast. What that does, that, that strains nation states. It strains urban areas to where you start to have political violence, and that's the warfare that you are talking about. The, the warfare that we've had in the last 15 years hasn't been nation on nation. It's been under – it's been non-state actors um, that have been moved to armed conflict against a government, and they might have like global in, in, 
um, intentions. You know, they want a global caliphate or you know, or something like that. But they're they they are armed political resistance against an internal nation state, uh, and that drives other people to get involved because of kind of the great powers considerations of their national interests in a certain area. But it's all urban. It's all. Um, instability that has been created in urban areas. If you trace every conflict that's happened in the Middle East or anywhere else lately, um, it's you can attribute it to something that's happened, something that's changed in the urban environment, the um, a lack of a loss of political control, uh, water scarcity, um, civil unrest because of um, poor governance. It, you know all these low-level problems then bubble up because of the complexity of urban and the, the density of people and the increased um, social connectivity into political violence, which then leads into this warfare, which then you know festers. Um, we're not recognizing that. Uh, and so that's – to me that you know the age of urban warfare – I've written about this – is already here, um, but we continue to prepare for non-urban warfare as nations. And that's all nations. Um, now, the second part about a combatant, how you recognize a combatant in all this, right? So in this, you know, in this complex urban environment of hundreds of thousands of people and you have lots of bad people um, and you have an armed political resistance to either the internal government or an external force if you start to rally you know, support um, from other nations, the, the definitions between a combatant and non-combatants still don't change. So I, I still go to your humanitarian law and say you know, the definition of a combatant, you know, an armed you know, group um, of individuals um, that get classified as a combatant. And then there's clear lines of what who, who's, who are not a combatant and what distinguishes them. Um, it's a lot easier to do if you're fighting a nation state who's wearing a uniform um, that's following all the laws because then, then there's a lot more uh, distinction between a combatant and a non-combatant because of a recognizable – your uniform, he's an armed individual, but um, and that's kind of the another aspect of the complexity of urban environments is when you have a uh, either a st- you can have a state who's not in uniform, you know, a state combatant. Um, and Russia is you know starting to corner the market on that um, to insert combatants into urban areas who aren't wearing a uniform, and so there's some deniability on nation state activity. Um, but a non-state person. Is how do you separate them from the non-combatants? And I studied that in urban warfare. Um, that there's there's only about four or five what I call rules of the game in urban warfare. Um, and one of the one of the rules is that if a non-state combatant or a, or a state combatant um, can dis- make it harder to distinguish between a civilian and himself he he gets more of an advantage right so it makes it really hard for the military who's trying to conduct their mission to distinguish between the combatant and non-combatant and they want to use that to their advantage so um, the definitions of combatant and non-combatant don't change when you're in an urban area but the difficulty in distinguishing between the two do change so on that note Yep. What kind of special training goes into this idea of going into 
war in a city or an urban environment and taking into consideration civilians that can be used as human shields and so forth because um, unfortunately, as we were just mentioning, cities and places that are urban have a lot more people that are condensed in them, in them and civilians that are either trying to escape or can't escape and are unfortunately thrown into the mix of the conflict. Yep. So, um, you know, the, the type of operation really matters. And I do a lot of study on kind of the high end of the, the operation where you have a, a very dense urban area and you have less a very small population of bad people but they're with, they're amongst the population um in those operations um you can predict the way that the military is going to approach it so number one thing that the military wants to do in a, in a situation like that is to surround the city and empty it of people um and, and that goes you know, way back in history they call it used to call it you know sun tzu called it to drain the swamp um you want to get everybody who's not a combatant out of there um, so you can have a fight with the bad guys with less restrictions on your actions because of how destructive you're going to have to be in order to basically cut that cancer out of that living organism. And that's the approach that we'll, you know, if you look at some of the major battles that have happened, um, that's what they call – it's not siege warfare um, because siege warfare is actually illegal now because you can't – you know, after the siege of Sierra, the international humanitarian law conventions, you know, re-emphasize laws that are already there about you can't you can't conduct siege on a city um, because if you siege a city, then there's no way to tell if your effects are impacting the civilians that are left there. So you know, like the you know, the aid getting in there, the water getting in there. So, but the military still does what's called isolation. So they'll surround a city. And then wait to conduct their military action until they can get as many people out of the city as possible. And there's ways to do that. You can set up basically safe zones in order to and, and direct people towards those safe zones. Um, in every battle that I study, and, and those are the greatest examples of like the Battle of Fallujah, even all the way up to the recent Battle of Mosul, um, we, we want to empty the city of people. And if there's planning – that takes time, um, it, and you don't have the capabilities to do that in some of the complex urban environments that we're talking about. And the, and the people always stay. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the step one of a military is going to take to a city is isolate it or a portion of it and try to get all the people out. Um, and then they're going to move in. They call it, they call it, call it a conductor breach. Um, they're going to move in and then try to find where the enemy is and then start a house-by-house house mission to eliminate that bad guy. And that's where you get the you know, destroy a city to save it the analogy that I've, I've used in a lot of my research. Um, because we haven't developed capabilities to fight in the urban environment, it becomes very destructive. Um, as you ask a ground guy to approach a building and there's somebody inside of it, you need – the the usually the solution to the is not to go inside of it to send a you know even a precision guided munition which has advanced in technologies but a bomb is still a bomb and it's going to create a lot of damage to a building and that's again what we've seen in the last ten years is in order to conduct this operation um, the toll it's taking on the cities um, 
and I don't want to be inhumane, is actually higher than the toll that is taking on the civilian population. Uh, if you look at the numbers of the recent battles, and whether it's Raqqa, Mosul, Aleppo, uh, depending on what military has executed the operation, the toll has been on the city um, more so than the civilians because most civilians ha- have evacuated. Um, I think one of the biggest examples for me is the, the Battle of Marwa. In, in the Philippines, um, where they called a national emergency and emptied the city of 90% of its 200,000 people population and then had the battle. Um, and that's what we see. And then they destroyed the entire city building by building to get you know 500 to 5,000 bad guys that were left in there out. That's the kind of the battle that the military envisions, that continues to envision or continues to do. Um, now, I was involved in a different type of battle, um, which is part of your question as well, is even if it's not high-end conflict like that, but you have, you're have inside of an urban area and you're trying to conduct a counterinsurgency operation um, where your you're legitimate government is in the area, but the violence is so high now that you've, you're looking towards the military to reduce the violence in the city. So the, the same you know, rules of the game are still – the most difficult. How do you separate the bad guy from the everyday life of that's going on in this city, despite your attacks are happening, you know, in, in crazy numbers daily, um, and their metrics matter. So there, there are things you can do um, in that type of warfare to try to separate um, the combatant from the non-combatant, even if, if it's not full-out combat, like the you know the entire city is a combat zone, like you were talking about. Um, which are the battles that we've seen lately. But even you go back to urban counterinsurgency, um, then all those rules of counterinsurgency start to play in effect. But what I tell people, when I was deployed to Baghdad in a combat zone in 2009, uh, I was doing very little military tasks. I was doing a whole lot of urban policing tasks, um, understanding how urban policing works in dense urban environments, and then using human intelligence signals intelligence, all that to find – to separate the bad guy from the good guy and then conduct operations, very precision um, raids and those type of operations in urban environments to just get the single person or a group of people out of – with the least amount of damage to the you know, to the city and to the population. Uh, long, long response to your question, but, but how complex this is. Um, I spend most of my time – Right now in my research, um, looking at that high end of combat where you have entire urban areas that have, that have been cap- taken captive um, or where the urban area is the objective, um, where you literally just want to take the city, the piece of terrain back. With all that being said, I mean, it's <laughs> so complicated. Yep. Are there ways of implementing effective strategies to work in this environment, but also reduce collateral damage? And I mean, especially in Iraq and Syria, we saw a lot of airstrikes being used, which you know accomplished some things, but completely devastated certain cities. Um, so, what effective strategies are there dealing with urban terrain combat, city combat, and so forth? Um. So, good, good question. Um, so the, 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 the strategy of avoid where possible is still a legitimate strategy. 
um, depending on what the mission is. Um, and, and I think, although I hate the 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 ta- the strategy of doing that, it is the most sensible strategy. But the problem is, you need to be prepared for the most worst case scenario, which is it's no longer an option to avoid. It's really funny. Um, the military does you know, a lot of um, I don't know, call them war games. And, and, and no matter what the military it is, it's really hard to force military um, people to go into an urban area. They'll do everything they can to avoid it, and that's and that's a good thing. Um, and there are um, you you look to history to, to to see what strategies have worked and what haven't, or to look to history to say where your strategy did not work to avoid a city. Um, it, if your uh, if your strategy is to conduct a regime change. You're going to have to strike at the at a city, usually a capital city, in order to do that. I mean, I think that we've done we've done a really good job in developing that approach. Um, and and I'm not against using historical examples like the the march to ba- Baghdad um, or the invasion of Panama or these examples of where if that's your nation state strategy is just to conduct a a regime change. Those that that actually works on a, um, a deep penetration into a capital city, um, engaging the the other military from a distance um, before you even get there, and those are all legitimate strategies. Um, but now, when you talk about you know, what we're talking about and what we're seeing in the evolution of warfare today, which is yeah, great, prepare yourself for nation state combat, um, but prepare yourself for the other parts of today's warfare which are these urban areas that have been that are now out of control even of the nation that the nation it is in um and i use the term feral cities sometimes but most people don't realize the number of urban areas across the globe which are um along this spectrum of okay or the the spectrum of the next urban fight um how many cities that are now so fragile or so undergoverned or so um, at a tipping point of violence that they will become the next spot of urban combat. Most people don't realize that because they they don't understand these urban areas. Um, even you look any example of today, even the cities of Iraq, um, how quickly and why they fell, um, and then once they fell, how hard it was. To retake them. Um, th- this conversation of what strategy you take to prevent the next urban fight cover all all spectrums of um, un- academic understanding. Even if it's international relations, even if it's political sciences, you know all these things that we say are you know to keep um, conflict below the level of war. It, it, this is where the investment goes into understanding urban areas. Like I said, before, you know, the I can you know I can talk to you for, for hours about how to change the way the military um, once it's given its mission is going to approach an urban fight and the capabilities that it doesn't have today, right? And this is the one I, I use a lot. The you, the reason that urban warfare is so destructive for the once you've given the mission to the military to go inside the urban area and to eliminate the bad thing that's in there is that 
because of the fact that we've avoided urban areas, we don't have the capabilities to see inside buildings, to see inside a car on the street. Um, we don't have the ability to even mask the military's uh, maneuvers when they're trying to get to a certain area of an urban urban space. You know, like I use that. I, I use this analogy of crossing the street is the most difficult task the military has today. One of the reasons is that they, they just don't have anything to mask themselves, to hide themselves, so that if you're looking at a 10-story building, every window of that building is a potential firing um, port for anybody within that building. And the U.S. military, it's not like we have these giant smoke screens, although we do, or – um, giant shields that can stop that buildings from firing on us. So we have to place fire on top of that building, which becomes very destructive. Um, but you know, that's one way. But th- this other aspect of how do you prevent the the next urban fight is that you have to understand the urban area and the all the power structures that are there, and understand what nations um, don't control the cities that we're talking about. And since they don't, do we still? Do we still use international relations to understand warfare, or do we start talking about understanding the complexities of cities to understand the next type of urban fight? Um, and there's lots of people in this space about understanding the resilience of, of a city. Um, do they have the ability to manage their own political violence? Because usually political violence is discussed in a, at a nation-state level. But what we've seen in the last 10 years it's been nation states, right? So it's been ISIS against some nation state. But when you get down to the complexities, it's been about ISIS being able to overcome the power structures of a large urban area very quickly to where now you have to deal with them. And I, I got a lot of bad publicity when I said I said something about that. Like somehow I'm saying that it's the city's fault that it was taken captive. Um, but it, it's it's about understanding the city's vulnerabilities and power structures. Um to include the political um, environments, and I don't mean political by nation state, but I mean, but you know, every, you, most people understand that the political violence that we've seen in the Middle East has been um, because of the decisions within these governments between two um, disenfranchised organizations, whether it's Sunni versus Shia, whether it's been the um, uh, rich versus the poor, um, the haves and the have-nots. All this is – these are continuities of warfare across time, but now they have an urban uh, context that we don't understand. And if I get you know geeky on the academic realm, that's because the even in the academics of understanding all of this stuff, all of our theories are not based in urban spaces. Whether you talk about civil war… Political instability, all of them have these base theories that are not urban. They're, they're rural constructs um, because the people who study urban environments don't mix with the people that study war. Um, the people that study war don't really mix with people that understand the, the urban environments or the evolution of urban environments. Um, what we understand is political objectives, um, and that gets you down a whole – um, line of thought among political objectives. That's what strategy is about, right? Using your military to achieve a political objective. But what we've seen, what we've seen now is that even within nations, 
these these urban environments have risen to a level where we're not talking about nation states. We're not talking about strategies. We're talking about almost city states. Um, and I, the the biggest example I like to use is Rio. Yeah, a beautiful place to visit. Um, but the political violence within the city that is impacted by some nation state decisions. Some, but it's really about the complexity of that mega city. Um, has had risen so high that then they asked for the military to take over, and, and that's I think that's historic, as well as I mean what we've seen with ISIS. But um, when you have to ask your military, which you haven't designed and haven't trained for anything to do with urban, to take over your basically your entire spectrum of security, everything from policing to fighting, because you've lost control. Um, that's, I think, something different, and another lens into the future as we understand how many of these very, very large urban areas are unstable to the point that they're, they are no longer able to be governed. And now you start to blur, blur the line of warfare, right? And you want, you keep, we keep talking about urban warfare, um, and in all these different situations, when you deploy a military – into a urban area, it's warfare, but it's an internal action that you've lost control of your civil order, which is usually a policing function. And this gets you down all the complexities of do we need to readdress international humanitarian law and are all of our laws on urban combat um, still applicable to all environments? So all of our laws that govern combat still applicable to all environments. And this, this gets me down the lines of some of the actions that we have taken to constrain warfare are making urban combat more destructive. So there's an initiative um, because of what we've seen in the last 15 years. There's not an initiative, a conversation. There has been a conversation that maybe we should – Ban the use of wide area effects weapons in urban environments. And the wide area effects can be everything from an artillery round to a bomb. Um, to me, that would be one of the most destructive things that we could do for the future of warfare is to ban explosive weapons, wide area effects explosive weapons in combat. And one of the reasons I point to is um, – there have been other tactics in warfare that get constrained because, like you, we, we talk about in this podcast, you know, warfare changes, and we try to regulate warfare so that it is less destructive to the non-combatant. Um, one of the two of the examples that I use is that in Vietnam, we heavily use tear gas, and we heavily use flamethrowers, um, two weapons that are now um, banned in armed conflict, but that were arguably created less destructive um, warfare in urban environments. So the Battle of Way is probably the, one of the biggest examples. In 1968, um, you know, where the your jungle warfighting was happening, but there was a, a big what's called the Tet Offensive, where the the Vietnamese, you know, North Vietnamese army basically attacked every city in Vietnam um, and, and caught everybody off guard. And then there were these large, major urban battles um, 
tear gas was used in order to clear combatants out of where they had dug themselves into into buildings. I know I understand the background to why we banned tear gas, but I've talked to some very high level people that don't understand that the fact that tear gas is now banned in international um, law as a method of warfare, so you you can't use it, and, and because it was abused. Um, but the same thing for flamethrowers. Flamethrowers, because they're abused in warfare, are now banned as um, or believed to be banned, so we don't use them. Um, and I, I, there's a couple of good quotes of you know from the Battle of Mosul where they said you know, that last battle, the reason you had to destroy every building is because that's 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 what's left when you have somebody embedded in a building that doesn't want to come out. Um, so if you bu- if you banned a wide area explosive munition like something that can penetrate a concrete building, the the next thing you do is these second and third order effects of warfare is you you have to turn to another tool. Um, and unfortunately, that tool has been a bulldozer or a wrecking ball in order to in order to get a combatant out of the building. I think I kind of went on a, a tangent there, but um, it, it all matters on, like you said, different strategies to um, conduct urban warfare. When we all know that the you know the what's what's embedded in that question is different strategies so that it's less destructive to the city. Um, no, actually, we don't we don't really consider that less destructive to the civilian population and the city that supports them. Uh, and that's a very complex topic. Um, if as you look at the future of warfare, we need different strategies to conduct the missions that we continue to see happening in warfare, which is the the weaker indiv- you know combatant embedding himself into the urban area because they know the advantages that they can get. All the the advantages that a military might have in um, in what we call intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, all the aerial assets, all your drones, all your precision guided munitions. A weaker enemy knows that if he pulls himself into an urban area, he can mitigate some of that um, by you know keeping the civilian population inside the city by digging tunnels and uh, underneath buildings so they can't be seen as they're moving. Uh, well, in order to combat that and develop a strategy that makes that not that you have to attack those advantages, right? So you have to attack the advantage of not being able to find the bad guy inside of a building until you actually put boots on the ground and get inside of it. So you need to develop strategies that, um, you know, or technologies that can see inside buildings, um, develop technologies that can penetrate layers of concrete um, with low collateral damage, and we have some of those, um, or you know, strategies that can stop a vehicle-borne IED from a distance as soon as it's recognized. Some of that stuff, uh, surprisingly, has not been developed yet until we commit ourselves to the fact that this is the future of warfare. And that's really surprising because we do see a lot of those tactics used in warfare that we've seen currently and in the recent past. So personally, I like to try to put myself... Um, on the other side of the spectrum in the sense of I study political violence, terrorism, and to try to understand some of it, I try to put myself in the actor's shoes. And just logically, you'd think that 
with the new style of conflict that we're seeing that using urban or city, those environments just seems very beneficial to whether it's non-state actors, insurgent groups, or even in a failed state where there are actors that are all vying for power. And as we've talked about earlier in the, the show, cities, you know, are becoming major hubs and, and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people are living in cities now. And we live here and work here and play. They're very strategic locations because there usually are power sources there, whether it's governmental or even just power sources for a nation. So I've got a couple of questions in the sense of why are we not preparing for more warfare in an urban environment? And also, do you think that urban warfare is something we're going to see becoming much more common in the future? Uh, the second one's e- really easy to answer. Absolutely, uh, urban, you know, it's in my title. But uh, urban warfare is is the nature of warfare today, and I think it will be the nature of warfare tomorrow and for the foreseeable future as the entire globe becomes more urban. Uh, I mean, another thing, another you know, startling factoid that still blows my mind um, that should make us think more about preparing for an urban world, although we already are an urban world, is that 180,000 people move to a city per day, and that's from the UN. I mean, that should that alone should blow people's minds, um, or the fact that the fastest growing cities like like i said that the underdeveloped world um will double its urban population in the next 10 years and it, to me it's just mind-blowing where are you going to fight that's not urban so the first part is a lot harder um to answer about um why aren't we preparing for that uh, the the it's it's probably simple but the number one reason we're not is that is because it's really hard to prepare for that environment um, if you look at – I can talk about the U.S. military just because I study it so much. Is How do you replicate – we have the saying called train as you fight. So we, we really spend a lot of money to replicate um, different types of environments and, um, that we're going to fight on. And then we have these mock battles to develop uh, our militaries to be able to do those missions. And, and we have these big combat training centers. So the, the – the thing that has been bothering us since, I mean, way, I mean, for for the longest time, I can I can pull out all kinds of studies, whether it's um, after Bosnia, after Panama, uh, after the Battle of Mogadishu. On, hey, we really need to prepare for um, this environment. The, the number one thing has always been about you can't replicate that environment, right? How are you going to prepare to fight in a city if you don't have a city that you can train to fight in? Um, because you know cities are defined by their populations, so how do you ha- how do you replicate fighting um, with that with that many people in the environment? So we what we try to do is build these little mock cities. Um, they're really mock urban areas, they're mock villages, and we build up you know put a lot of buildings and put a lot of money into them. Um, and, and usually, what's missing is the population, because how do you train to fight? Um, with the people amongst the populations, so we we you know we, we put emphasis on trying to fight you know, with with bad guys inside of buildings, um, but it's you know, like we've been talking about this whole hour you know this whole time is is a lot more complex than that. 
the other, uh, you know, so that's the number one reason that, that people will say that um, we don't prepare this environment because of how hard it is to replicate the environment to train in it. Um, you know, usually I'll point to the Israeli military who, who have built um, a very, a very uh, accurate mock city to to train their military on because they they know the environment in which they're going to fight. Um, it, it's not unknown to them. The problem with any Nate, you know, the great superpower of militaries is that they don't know, right? So they they have to be able to prepare for all environments. But it, all, it still all goes back to how do you replicate the environment? And um, so we don't have an urban warfare school in the U.S. military. And that's, you know, I'm a big proponent that we should. Um, but m- most people still point back to, well, but how are you going to replicate the urban space, right? You can put up a lot of buildings anywhere or you can um, – but how are you going to fill up full of people? But the fact that we don't even have a school where we attempt to, to – um, learn the lessons from past urban battles or to focus and build a certain body of knowledge or experts in the environment. Um, and actually nobody has done that um, outside, again, Israelis, but they have done an amazing job on building the expertise to fight inside of dense urban areas because they've had to, and that they know that that will be their environment forever. Well, we have to be prepared to fight in jungles in deserts, in the mountains of Afghanistan, you name it, um, so, and 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 rightfully so that the mil- U.S. military is this global um, global force, but the fact that we haven't um, invested strongly, as in creating a school, um, creating massive um, research projects, uh, developed. Specialized equipment, specialized units, um, it is because we we don't want to fight in that environment, and we say it's too hard to replicate it to prepare for it. And I'm a I'm a I'm probably the biggest critic, but I also recognize um, over the last ten years all the work that the military has done, um, the research they have conducted, the technologies that they're trying to invest in, um, and how hard it is to say. I can't say that urban that warfare urban warfare will be the only warfare of the future because that's also historical and you, you can't predict that. Um, but I can say it will be a forever part of warfare in the future since the entire world is now urban and that nation state warfare is highly unlikely in the near future, but non-nation state political instability combat warfare in urban areas is much more likely so we should be in doing everything we can to replicate the complexities of that environment both in real structures virtual structures and in academic studies most of this talk we've been discussing the difficulties around urban terrain combat so I want to ask you the question as kind of one of my final questions. Do we have anything that constitutes a successful urban or terrain, whatever term we want to use, combat zone? Is like How do we define success when there has been warfare within this environment? Oh, that's a, that's a, one of my favorite questions. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, we measure success in the U.S. 
military or really on the global stage. No, I say within from the if you ask that you know three guys walk into a bar, ask the military guy. I can tell you for a fact that all their metrics of success are enemy oriented. Did we eliminate the enemy? Um, or I mean, I, to be fair, did we achieve the political objective? So whatever, what is the political objective? Is it to eliminate the enemy within a city? Or is it to reclaim the city for the political organization? And, and, and history has shown us that there's a big difference between the two. So you can surround a city um, and, and ask the, the combatant to leave. Um, and that has happened where we have surrounded a city recently and the bad guy has escaped. What's your measure of success? Was that a success? Well, was the mission to reclaim the urban environment or was it to kill every bad guy there is? Um, there, there's a big difference between the two. But no matter what, the metrics are always enemy-oriented um, usually. They're not necessarily the metrics of how much of the urban area did you destroy to accomplish your mission. Um, they are usually how many civilians were killed in the operation. Um, there's some problems with you know, main, you know, accurate reporting of um, the, the ability to accurately report that. Um, but this – this new – since this is a new form of warfare that is now the form of warfare, the, the, the metrics of how much of the city did you destroy to accomplish your mission is, is a relatively new measure of effectiveness because the military's effect, measure of effectiveness is accomplishing the political objective. Um, so the, that's kind of on the ownership of the political decision makers. What was the mission you gave? Was it to eliminate ISIS, to kill every – individual that is a recognized element of ISIS or was it to reclaim your city um, and there, there's a big you know, not to be vague the big difference between the two um, one of the so historical examples are a great help in that um, was it necessarily necessary to destroy the city to accomplish your mission um, and I think one of the, some of the examples one of the big examples um, there's a battle that happened in 2008 that I was actually just happened to be on a part of called the Battle of Sadr City, where it was a city of two million people, which is crazy, um, that were launching rockets. Well, that just happened recently into the green zone, um, and the the political objective was to stop rockets from hitting the green zone um, and to eliminate the military um, arm of a political faction. So, but the the political constraint was that you couldn't go inside the city. Um, because they knew from a political stance that, that would become internationally unacceptable, the destruction that would happen if you went inside the city. So what they ended up doing was put a concrete wall around the city and control the ins and outs of the city. Um, you know, there's lots of factors in time and, and, and bullies to do that, but the political objective was accomplished. The, the enemy could no longer reach the certain firing points it needed to ro- launch rockets into the green zone. And it could no longer re- – as soon as the wall started going in, the, the combatant exposed themselves from within his non-combatant population and then was easily targeted. Um, this, that's just one example of a different strategy to achieve the objective that you, you've, you've set out on your military. Um, and 
and like you said, you've studied you from this political violence aspect of it. It's the some of the ownership is on the political leadership on determining what the objective is and what your measure of success is. Um, but I, you know, a lot of people when they ask me that question, they're talking about what are your measures of success for a, you know eliminating the bad guy? Is is it just the number of bad guys you killed, or is it the number of um, how much of the percentage of the city did you destroy and percentage of civilian casualties? Um, and some of that should be compared against historical operations, and uh, arguably, it's it's much less the the, the number of civilian casualties. Um, but that doesn't help the fact that it's, it's a very high civilian casualty type of combat, and and you have to develop strategies to mitigate that. And I think that um, the, the U.S. military has definitely done that, and it's very cognizant in between you know when they engage in combat uh, in urban areas. Sounds like success is defined in different ways depending on what the actual mission's goal is then within different situations, really. Yes. But, you know, I I always go back to this, and and I'm real, and you know, know, thorn in my side is this, the military preparing for combat without um, some of those considerations of political constraints. Um, you know, we want to empty the city of civilian populations and just have a battle with the bad person in ur- what we call urban terrain. Um, but history shows that that's not possible. You know, whether it's the the first battle of Fallujah, where that was the tactic that was used, but the 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 international publicity on the damage that was being caused and the civilian casualties that were being caused cause the military to fail in its objective. And and you know, God forbid you say the US military failed, but the US military failed in Fallujah One to achieve its political objective so much so that it was told to stop its operation. Um, but then you know nine, six, nine months later they conducted the operation again, but by that point they had successfully emptied the city um, of a majority of civilians but we don't like to point to our failures. We want to point to our uh, point to our successes. We don't want to point to the times that we have, we have literally failed in our objectives um, to where the strategies that we wanted to do wasn't working. Um, so we had to develop other strategies. It just seems like such a complex situation and a complex environment to maneuver in and work in. Um, you're new to the show, so we like to give our guests, if time permits, the opportunity to maybe touch on something that we might have missed during the conversation or to have a final thought. So I'm going to pass over the floor to you, John. Oh, ah, I, mean, I hit most of the, the big ones. I mean, this, the shockiness of um, the future of warfare, I, I, some people still don't, I don't think grasp. Um, and, the, you know, cause you know, we're talking a, a very complex topic of, what we should be preparing for. Uh, all militaries should be preparing for urban combat. I'm, I study the U.S. military, but I don't care what military you are. You should be developing urban capabilities. And that, that, that includes military capabilities, but it also includes diplomatic capabilities. And I think um, that can be echoed across um, you know, 
all countries as well. Even if you use your military in a in, in an urban environment, you're still going to need other capabilities as the fired, and that's um, you know whether it's your Department of State or light organizations, or if it's your policing functions. And there have been some historical examples of where a military um, that was built up to accomplish an urban task, but they also built up the civil order, you know, a policing arm to follow the military. So the, the minute that your military task was complete, your policing arm was then put in because you shouldn't use your your military, although it's usually a capacity thing, to conduct policing um, because they're totally not trained for it. But the same thing for understanding how to reconstruct a city. The the from from a U.S. government perspective, we should be investing as much in urban warfare capabilities in our military as as we should be in our diplomatic arm. The Department of State should be investing as equally as much on understanding city stability and how to rapidly get a city back up and functioning. But um, just based on what we view as our priorities, we invest in countries, um, you know, whether that's country teams, uh, country experts. We don't invest in city teams, city experts, to where we're, we, ha- we have these teams of people that understand problem cities and then have these body of experts that we can then put in, and that's historical. So that's probably my, my parting thought is that, yes, we need to invest in military for urban warfare, we need to invest in humanitarian capabilities, diplomatic capabilities, and information. You know, the whole what we call the the dime. You know, diplomatic, information, military, economic. Those are all focused on nation states and not focused on urban areas. And I think you and I agree that if this is the 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 environment of warfare in the future, we need to change the way we view the world and develop. All of our forms of national power for urban spaces, but we have to do that at the same time we hold um, what they're doing today. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show to discuss this very difficult topic. It's there's so many complexities to it. After having this discussion with you, that it really makes my mind spin a bit. But I think it's. A conversation we need to have, so I'm so glad you could come on the Loopcast to discuss this with us. Oh, thanks! Thanks for having having me. Um, I really enjoyed it. <laughs>